It's Monday, July 15th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Fool.com, Matt Koppenheffer. Happy Monday, gentlemen. It's hot in here. It's, that's, it's hot here in the greater D.C. area, and it is hot in our office because the A.C. was out over the weekend, but it's nice and cool here the in the studio. The little escape, I'm staying here the rest of the day. I was just going to say, everybody lock and load for a nine-hour podcast because, no, we're not going like to talk for that long. Arctic oasis. Uh, we're going to talk technology. We're going to talk Dow stocks. We will dip into the full mailbag via Twitter. Uh, but let's start with uh, one of the big banks, which is Citigroup. Quarterly revenue and profits came in higher than expected. What do you think, Matt? It seems like a pretty good quarter. Looking good. It, it, I think it was a, a solid quarter overall. Uh, you know, one, one of the stories I've been looking at, and, and I'll get just wonky for one second okay. here. With, with interest rates going up, one of the things that we've seen is that the bond portfolios of the banks, we saw this with JP Morgan and Wells Fargo as well, have taken a big hit. So for Citigroup, they didn't break it out specifically. But if you look at their uh, on their balance sheet, they break out comprehend- the changes in comprehensive income, which is basically the stuff that doesn't show up on the income statement. And that was down about $3 billion. So what we're seeing is that they took a multi-billion dollar hit, basically, on their available for sale bond portfolio. But the interesting thing is, so we, we value bank stocks based on their book value. So what a bank investor wants to see is that book value move up. Even with this multi-billion dollar hit uh, from the bond portfolio, book value still went up. Granted, not by a whole lot. Mm-hmm. But but I think this is a this is a show of the the earnings power of these big banks that they can take a hit like that on their balance sheet and still increase book value nevertheless. Yeah, I think a couple of things probably to look at would just be the you know we've seen the the refinance boom essentially start ticking back down and and we'd referred to the the Freddie Mac quarterly report last week and and they noted that uh, that rising interest rates was certainly taking the interest, uh, the, the refinancing boom back down. I know these banks make a lot of fees from. Uh, refinances, Wells Fargo particularly. Wells Fargo. And um, I don't know how time. exposed City mm-hmm. is to something like that. I guess I would just wonder what what they see is is that effect. A L- little bit less yeah. so because they're not a huge player in the in the mortgage game. Bank of America will see a little bit more when we see them later this week. J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo did, but one of the interesting things we saw there is that purchase money is starting to come back in a lot more. So the the fees that the banks were earning on refinancing not totally being replaced by people actually purchasing homes and them getting fees on those mortgages, but that's creeping back in and starting to see. One of the other things that Citi and its investors will have to look out for, though, is what's going on in China. 49% of Citi's earnings come from emerging markets, and there is some some Asian exposure there, Asian emerging emerging markets exposure there. And so if China does unravel not to not, not to go overboard on so that, to speak but so to speak but if um, but if China, China hits the skids then then that's a, more of a concern for city than, than the other big banks you and I were talking earlier this morning over by your desk and I made the point hey the stocks you look at Citigroup stocks been on fire lately and it kind of seems like it's been on fire ever since CEO Vikram Pandit left Obviously, I know a whole lot less about banks than you do, and I was very quick to just say, "Well, there you go. They they got rid of Pandit, and now that now they're taking care of business." You said, "No, that's actually not the case." You know, I think history will see it that way because the timing just worked out that way, and and just just as I often look Poor at Vikram. <laughs> you know, I look at I look at presidents who who are who are lauded or hated for the way the economy performed uh, when they were when they were in in power, but. 
often that's due to circumstances and decisions that were made years before they were ever elected. In the case of Vikram Pandit, he just happened to get ousted at just the right time. Michael Corbett is going to look awesome. I mean, the stock has done well, the bank has done well, and I think that's really just a a timing thing. Just to close out on the stock, it's up about 90% in the last 12 months. Is it still a fair value? Do you, you know, when you talk about the book value, when you think about the stock, is it pricey or is it still a a decent value at these prices? That's quite a run-up in just one year. It is, but when you look at the valuations that the banks went to post-crisis, right? I still think City has good cushion, good way to go. I think it's a reasonable stock to buy. I'm thinking about it. And when you look at the capital levels, so the, the safety, the, the kind of safety cushion that the banks have built up post-crisis, City has actually outpaced just about everybody else. This is, they've created a pretty stable balance sheet. The BlackBerry Z10 smartphone got some very good reviews. And if you're thinking about buying it, Jason, I have really great news because <laughs> when it first came out, which was not too long ago, the price is $199. Now the price has been cut in half, $99. If you buy it on Amazon, it's 49 Company spokesman said, quote, now is the right time to adjust the price. It's part of life cycle management to tier the pricing for current devices to make room for the next ones. Uh. So like the first thing that came to my mind when I read this, do you remember that old old game? I think it's it's sort of been around for for a couple of generations, name that tune. Sure, yeah. And so like one yeah. of the, one of sort of the iterations of name that tune is I can name that tune in five notes and then like we're going head to head. I can name it in four right, notes. Right, exactly. So so Blackberry is like that. It's like that guy who says I can name this tune in one note. <laughs> Right, they're just going to drop their price. It's desperation. Like nobody can name the tune in one note. Right, it's just a C. It's a D. It's something like that. BlackBerry is just stuck in this position where they're going to just—they have to lower their prices. To t- they have to figure out a way to make that you know device look a little bit more attractive than something like an iPhone or a Samsung, a Samsung device. Uh, the problem is that you know the technology has has passed them by, and the the ecosystem that comes with that technology has completely passed them by as well. Whether you are an Apple uh, lover or a Samsung or an Android lover, we just don't th- it seems like the BlackBerry lovers are just slowly dwindling away. And and you know, this is happening at the worst time in the stage of the smartphone game because they are truly entering that commoditization phase now. It really does seem like it is now getting to the point. I know BlackBerry is not going out of business this year. Um, But it does seem like if you're looking to buy a smartphone and you're thinking, oh, I'll have this for two years, maybe three years, the health of the underlying business now needs to enter your calculus, doesn't it? Because if you're buying a BlackBerry Z10, again, the phone got good reviews from the tech sites and all that sort of thing, Matt. But if you're buying one now, you're basically saying, in essence, oh, yeah, this company will absolutely be in business in two to three years. It probably should enter into the calculation. I'm trying to think of whether I would think about that. I'm just thinking about the trajectory of this price move. I'm not against switching phones. I had an iPhone for a while. I have an Android HTC now. And I'm thinking that if I wait another six months, BlackBerry will be paying me to use its phones. (laughs) And at that point, I can get interested in using a BlackBerry again. I, I used them way back when, when they were just for yeah. when they were just for bankers and, and nerds. Um, but but I could use it again if they're going to pay me to do it. Um, looking at the stock, though, you know, I'm not I'm not crazy about this company. But being a a historical Ben Graham fan, 
I look at it at a 20% discount to tangible book value, about half of its book value. The one, the, the one reason I could see jumping in on this is that it's one of those Ben Graham kind of cigar butt type investments that it's got one or two puffs left yep. and that's it. And then you, you hop back out. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a great point. That's where this stock is at this point. I mean, it, there is, it's not to say that BlackBerry is a worthless company. There is some value there, whether it be in the patents or just you know, the, 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 intellectual, <laughs> the intellectual sort of uh, technology or, or proprietary technology maybe that they have you know, behind those doors. There are some smart people working there, but they just, you know, they, they've obviously been passed by. Um, who knows how to get in there and value that, though? I mean, you look at the cash on the books, and when I look at something like a BlackBerry, I tend to immediately discount that completely because I just feel like that's you have to add that t- sort of to your margin of safety. And if you can get in there and figure out what to kind of value those patents and, and whatever else may be, uh, may be behind those doors, good luck to you. But I just feel like there are better opportunities out there. On Friday, shares of Boeing dropped 5% after an empty 787 Dreamliner caught fire on the runway at London's Heathrow Airport. That was Friday. Uh, shares back up uh, a couple of percentage points this morning. Um, I don't know, Matt. I look at Boeing, and I just think between the batteries and incidents like this, I'm starting to wonder, what does it take for for the... I, I, I continue to be stunned that this stock is not falling through the floor. Maybe not through the floor, but falling more significantly, even taking into account, as we have talked about earlier this year, when the battery problems first surfaced for the Dreamliner, we talked about things like, look, it's an air, they make aircraft. There is an incredibly high barrier to entry in this marketplace. I get all of that. I'm still surprised the stock is doing what it's doing. Well, I think as Jason was saying before we started here that this they're saying this wasn't a battery issue. This is just a regular plane right. fire. <laughs> yes. This is a regular plane fire as opposed <laughs> to the battery ones. It, you know, that that's what you were just saying. That's what comes to mind for me is that when you're when you're in a market where it's basically dominated by those big two and I'm not going to get a couple of friends together and raise a, a few hundred thousand dollars and say, okay, let's put together some planes right. and sell them to Delta. Um, it's just not going to happen. Uh, so so the, you're right. The barriers of entry are so high. Boeing's got such an established position. It's going to be really, really hard for the company to, uh, to, to get uh, upended. Again, if you're Airbus, if you're, if you're an executive at Airbus, aren't you on the phone to every major airline and just saying, hey, look, this has been dragging on the entire year. You notice the theme of today's show? I mean, it's fire, right? Citigroup <laughs> is on fire. BlackBerry is having a fire sale. And Boeing planes are catching fire. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> today's market foolery brought to you by fire. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, Matt, I think Max, Matt is exactly right there with the – I mean, the barriers to entry, Airbus and Boeing together – uh, run basically a duopoly. They have these tremendous modes, and I think that's why you don't see a stock like this tank so quickly because there's just there's no real substitute, right? And so then you look at just some of the numbers out there, and, and regardless how this fire started, I mean, the fact of the matter is, I mean, Boeing has a close to four hundred billion dollar backlog, a potential seventy five billion dollar contract with the U.S. Air Force, and a net cash position on their balance sheet of two and a half billion dollars. So this is a company that has plenty of financial resources and optimism on the horizon. Uh, who knows how this fire started? I, 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 yeah, I just—it's bizarre because you figure if it's not the battery, then it's someone just 
flicking a smoke at the window and missed, right? I mean, I don't know. It's one of the two. But uh, no, I don't, I don't like the thought of a plane catching fire. But yeah, we don't have a lot of choice in the matter, do we? But when, when you think about it, too, you know, given that we were just talking about Citigroup earlier, when Jason was just talking, I thought of this, that when we think about the idea of too big to fail, I mean, think about it. Is, is, is the U.S. going to cede that market basically entirely to Airbus? They're, they're, I mean, Boeing is, is such, a, such a key asset for the U.S. economy, for the U.S. itself, that um, I, I don't know. I really I don't know what it would have to do to, uh, to, 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 lose, to, to lose confidence. So from an investing standpoint, taking it completely in the other direction, is that part of the thesis for Boeing? Like, if you're a shareholder and you're looking at Boeing, I have to believe someone is looking at this stock right now and saying, well, gosh, I mean, how, how much more headline risk can this company have? For crying out loud, the plane caught on fire on the tarmac. You know, thankfully, no one was hurt. But if, if that's not going to damage the stock, then just imagine how well the stock will do when business is going well and planes aren't catching on fire. Maybe, but I don't think you're going to see this stock move tremendously to the upside on great news either. I mean, it's going to be a relatively low volatility stock unless you know planes just start f- falling out of the air. Then we may have a problem. Um, but yeah, I mean, just as much you know, just as much volatility that's limited to the downside and bad news. I, I think the upside is, is limited as well in good news. It's just it's a relatively kind of a steady eddy sort of company to be in with. Uh, before we get to our final story, I, I gotta, uh, give. I guess it's not a programming note, just more of a uh, behind the scenes note, uh, which is that Matt Greer, our longtime producer here at Market Foolery, uh, is has taken on a new role. Inside the company, he's going to be working on video on the, the premium services, which I know some of our dozens of listeners are members of. So, uh, the good news is, keep your eyes peeled for um, uh, new, better, special, different video coming on the premium side. Uh, unfortunately for us, uh, I always mention Mac in the closing credits. Um, uh, Mac will not be producing Market Foolery uh, going forward, and we will soldier on without him. But um, uh, for those of you who enjoy this podcast, um, I, I cannot express enough um, uh, what level of thanks needs to go to Mac Greer. Because as much as anyone, Mac was the one uh, back in very early 2011 saying, "No, no, no, we can do this. We we can we can crank this out every day." Uh, and he was very much the driver behind Market Foolery in general. And the outtakes for those who <laughs> for those who always listen to the end, uh, the out, the outtakes will continue uh, at some point. But we'll we'll just uh, have our man Rick uh, Rick Engdahl uh, executing the uh, the wizardry uh, on the technical end. So thank you to Mac Greer, and and if you want to thank Mac, uh, just drop an email radio at fool dot com. We will make sure he gets that. Uh, our final story comes uh, from a question via Twitter. You can follow us on Twitter at Market Foolery. Uh, this comes from Tatiana Kildashiva. I hope I am pronouncing that correctly. I almost certainly am not. Uh, she writes on Twitter, and this was directly to me, uh, I disregarded your advice. I bought the <laughs> IPO of Fairway Group Holdings, my favorite grocer in New York City, up 59%. What is the foolish take on it? Uh, Fairway Group Holdings, for those who may not know, this is the premium grocer. They have 12 locations in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. Uh, Jason, fair to say that they are competing with the likes of Whole Foods, but also on the private side, like a Dean and DeLuca, that sort of thing. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, we, we, we do say uh, when we talk IPOs, we typically tell people, stay away for a quarter mm. or two, see what – but 
here's a woman who's done quite well. What do you think of, of Fairway? Not a, not a big company. No, not big at all. And I mean, I, Tatiana, I don't know what price you bought in. I don't know what the status of the investment is for you. I, you know, I look at, I look at. Uh, she's up fifty nine percent. She's doing well. <laughs> I mean, is that established? Okay, good. So yeah, she's done well thus far. I think. Yeah, I look at a company like this, and so I, I, the first thing I look for are the positives. I want to look for the market opportunity. I went through their ten k to look at their market opportunity, what they see it as at least. And yeah, at, at twelve stores today, it's tiny, but they do see a relatively uh, large market opportunity out there, spreading from the greater New York area to more northeastern uh, locations. Locations, DC, we might see one here one day, but they see that that sort of Northeast market can support up to 90 stores and that their US market opportunity is closer to 300 stores. Wow. So that puts it more in line with something like a Trader Joe's that has 350 stores today. These stores are much bigger than Trader Joe's stores. And uh, their their most recent fiscal year uh, revenues, they brought in a little bit over $660 million in sales. So a lot of good things there. They've been able to grow sales at a relatively nice clip, and there seems to be a big market opportunity out there. Uh, whenever we look at IPOs, the thing about IPOs is you don't really have an idea of how the company is being being managed or how it's going to how it's going to behave as a publicly traded company. So that that's one of the things I kind of the only thing that can really resolve that is time. Uh, but they do have a, a big ownership, Sterling Investment Partners, which is a, a you know venture capital that helped get them to where they are today, owns about 47% of the shares outstanding. But because of a, a dual share class structure, they have about 76% of the voting power ah. of this company. So basically, at this point, Tatiana, what I'm trying to say is that you are just sort of following along Sterling Investment Partners for the ride here. Uh, not that that's a bad thing. It could be a good thing. I just don't know. But But we have to realize also that in October... There will be a lockup that expires on some shares that are out there, so that means more shares will be available uh, to trade, which could short-term result in some downward pressure on the the stock. But with that said, it's it's a company that's playing into that higher grocery space, yeah. like a Trader Joe's higher or Whole Foods, and we like that. You know, it's not stuck in that sort of Kroger sort of middle ground trying to to sort of identify itself. Uh, definitely some growth opportunity there. I've never been to one of these stores, but on on the surface, it looks like a neat possible growth story. And I think if you have shares today and you like the company and you like the store and the experience, I don't see any reason you sh- you shouldn't hang on to those shares and see how this plays out because it seems like it could be. You know, a story that that just goes on for a number of years. Well, and just the growth opportunity—twelve locations now. If yep. they think they can get to three hundred, gosh, even if they get to one hundred twenty, that's you know. Yeah, and I mean, like looking at valuation-wise, because we price always does matter, especially with grocers and their lower margins. Uh, when we were looking at the Kroger Harris Teeter deal last week, and, and the valuations that were implied there, a Kroger trades at somewhere around 0.5 times sales. Uh, Fairway is is rather expensive by that metric. It, it, it is trading at more about two times sales right now. But that's also it's a brand new IPO, and there's still a lot of shine on this apple, so to speak. And so you kind of give it some time, let them sort of figure their way out. I I, I think it's still worth uh, worth keeping your money in there and watching it. I was talking with our colleague Austin Smith this morning. We were talking about private companies that we wish were public, or that you know, and Trader Joe's. Instantly came to mind. You're a fan of Trader Joe's. I'm a right? big fan of Trader Joe's. Would you like to see them? I don't even know what the ownership is there. I I, I know. So one of the I other companies. There is one Pepsi of the other company has an ownership interest in that. I believe, right? Who does? Pepsi, I, I believe, has some type of ownership interest in Trader Joe's to a degree. I believe. They. I. I'm not sure about. I'm not sure about that. That could be the case. I. I just know that it's closely held. Yeah. And yeah. and the last the last that I heard, um, they have the very. 
extremely little interest yeah. in going public. <laughs> they love the way things are going. Yeah. They make a lot of money. Well, that's the and thing. If they... you don't need the capital, then don't <laughs> yeah. bother. And that's just, just like we. Sh- that's where we do our shopping. And I, I, there's part of me that, yeah, I'd like to see Trader Joe's go public for the investment opportunity. But honestly, I feel like that might ruin a really good thing. I kind of like what they're doing. I, I think secretly, I'd just rather see them stay private. <laughs> yeah. we, you know, an interesting uh, comparable a little bit, I oh, – when I was on the West Coast, we used to do a lot of our shopping at, at Fresh and Easy, which is a was a, a Tesco disaster, basically. Tesco, the UK grocer. Yep. It, and I think a lot of the reason that it was a disaster was they decided, Tesco decided for some reason that they were going to start these stores in Nevada and Arizona circa 2007, 2008. So Ouch. right as the worst housing <laughs> bubbles were about to blow up, they start. But they were great stores. And one of the things that they did that was similar to Trader Joe's, which I think is just fantastic, is that they had a lot of own brand stuff in there, mm-hmm. which is when you think about a Kroger, it's they're selling the Kellogg's, they're selling the Procter & Gamble stuff. And basically, you're taking it, you're marking it up a little bit, and you're taking – that's why the margins are so, so slim. When you're selling your own stuff, you can get much better margins, and the grocery business becomes a little bit more interesting. We will end there. Matt Coffinhead for Jason Moser. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Technical Wizardry provided by Rick Angdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.